Welcome to Humans of SaaS. I'm your host, Ben Wynn, and on this show, I talk to entrepreneurs, innovators, and leaders from the tech industry who each have a unique and compelling story to share. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another week of Humans of SaaS. I'm Ben Wynn, and this week we're covering LinkedIn's new filter that allows you to get rid of all political content from your feed, the ongoing hiring crisis that continues to get worse, and a rise in workers faking their way through interviews, especially technical interviews, and uh, the metaverse. Uh, they announced that everyone at Facebook, formerly Facebookers, are now called MetaMates. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the metaverse and I cringe saying it, but NFTs and, and the like. So some exciting things for everyone today. Starting off with LinkedIn's new political filter feature. LinkedIn has been actually been celebrated lately as one of the best social media networks. And it's surprising because <laughs> not to dig at Microsoft, but it's surprising because no one, no, no one finds any of Microsoft's products to be their favorite. Um, but LinkedIn is really great, and it's not because of the engineering. I think that you know this is not meant to be you know down on LinkedIn, but compared to pretty much every other social media platform, LinkedIn just has there are a lot of features that feel clunky. Some of the design isn't isn't you know at an Instagram level or things like that. But what they've really nailed right is fostering the atmosphere of the platform and keeping it that way. I think something like Instagram or Twitter where anything goes and it's everything, you just get this mishmash of everyone's verbal diarrhea or you know whatever they're typing, finger diarrhea. That just sounds disgusting. I think that's the first time I've said diarrhea on the podcast. But you know, you're getting sort of anything and everything on those, whereas LinkedIn has been focused on work. It's like Slack, you know, Slack is where work happens. And so people are generally, unless it's maybe in a dedicated channel, they're generally not talking about, you know, politics and movies and that sort of thing. Often companies will have like a dedicated channel and it's like, this lives separately. 99.9% .9 of our Slack is for work. And LinkedIn is the same. There is that 0.1% where people use it to talk about, you know, their wedding or their child or, you know, things that are completely unrelated. And if you like uh, making fun of that stuff, definitely check out the LinkedIn Lunatics subreddit. It's really fun. Um, but LinkedIn has done such a great job of maintaining the the culture of the platform. It is very much focused on work. Their algorithm does work in terms of showing what you want to see versus what you don't want to see. You can share if you like a post or if you don't like a post, it'll feed you more or less of that thing. They've done a great job of that. And, and because of that, it's actually pretty much the only social media platform I personally use. I have accounts on everything that are extremely inactive. Um, but LinkedIn, I'm on, on almost every day because it's where I engage with people who have similar interests and experience and are in my field. So I'm excited for to see their, their growth over the last a uh, few years especially, they've been seeing a huge movement and increase in terms of Gen Z joining the network. And a part of that is because people are looking for new jobs. A lot of people are looking to get into tech and LinkedIn has grown right along with that hunger for people moving into these new jobs and, and especially trying to get into tech. And so they're now trying to adapt the platform to keep what's good about it and still make it a place that's helpful and you know beneficial for all these new people who are joining the community, the LinkedIn community, and becoming users. Um, so, in that regard, they've they've started to add new filters and new new features. One of which is this new politics feature filter that uh, is in beta with with some users. I think about half of their U.S. users they they rolled it out to. And you know, it's not a hundred percent yet, but basically through a mixture of algorithms and uh, natural language processing and their own editorial team at LinkedIn, their feature they'll filter out all political uh, stuff from your feed. 
Fortunately, I don't get a lot of political stuff on my feed, but I'm very aggressive about unfollowing people and, you know, hiding stuff if, if, if it's that sort of thing. That's not what I'm going on LinkedIn for. That's for my ghost Twitter account to just go and, you know, get get angry for 30 minutes and then leave. LinkedIn is, is where I go to figure out what people are working on and, and hear about fun announcements and see what's going on, um, you know, in the professional sphere. So um, I really like this new feature. I, I'm guessing that there will be some level of controversy as it sort of gets more popularized, and more, more rolled out um, in a similar way that we've seen companies like CoinSquare is the one that comes to mind, but I know there have been a few, Basecamp, um, that have rolled out no politics policies on Slack at work. They've come under a lot of fire for that. There have generally been some sort of exodus from that company. And then, you know, things level out. People who like that and appreciate about their, that about the company's culture then apply to work there. And, and you know, it's there's a bit of a shift. And then in the long term, um, you know, it balances out uh, because people look for different things at work. And I think, you know, do politics belong at work is an interesting topic to dive into. I think, you know, it's one of those things where a lot of people would say that no, but it's inevitable. Like you can't separate the two because if we're at work 10 hours a day or whatever it is, you know, politics is a huge part of life and things are happening in the political sphere that will inevitably leak over. So, you know, to say that people can't talk about politics is is too suppressive and it it just skirts the issues and that are important to the workforce. And, and I, I definitely think there's some validity there, but I also think that people need to get work done. And often those conversations can be really distracting and so it sort of depends on a case by case basis, but I'll be interested to see how it goes on LinkedIn because, you know, for one thing, they're making it optional. So if you want political content, you can absolutely leave it on. And if you don't, you could leave it off. Kind of like one of the solutions we put in here at Catalyst that I thought was a great, a great thing during the last election, which was, you know, we're going to have this one channel dedicated to political conversations, current events. If you want to participate in that stuff absolutely join the channel talk in that channel you know by joining it you know you understand that this is a respectful environment and you know everyone has the best intentions all these things but it made it where there's like a designated space so we're not saying no political conversations just please keep them over here so that we don't you know get sidetracked and it doesn't interrupt people's work um so linkedin's sort of doing that at scale right for people who want to talk politics you'll be able to and for people who don't want to see that you'll be able to get rid of it from your feed. Um, I can't wait to be able to turn it on for my own profile. Um, not that it's bad. I think LinkedIn's already done a good job of curating the feed and, and I don't see political stuff too, too much, but you know, I'm someone who uh, compartmentalizes every aspect of my entire life and I like work to be work, home to be home, relaxation time to be relaxation time. And I get very stressed when those boxes mix together. Um, so for myself, I will definitely be turning it on and I'm, I'm excited to see it and I'm excited to see the other things that LinkedIn has rolling out, you know, and I hope they continue to capitalize on things like their creator mode that enables people to put out different kinds of content and get followers instead of just ads. I think there's a lot of potential. Uh, they're incorporating video into profile pictures. So if you don't want um, a profile picture, you could do a profile video where it's like a 30 second blurb about yourself, which I, I think could be really cool. You know, of course, there are, are things too that, that everyone wants wants fixed about LinkedIn. And there are things that, that haven't really worked, like, you know, the stories, like they tried to do sort of Instagram stories and that didn't really catch on. So I think there's, there's a mix of things, but I think by and large, LinkedIn is just going to keep getting bigger. And I think they're moving in a good direction. So I think there, there's a lot of potential and I'm excited about what this new political feature will do. 
Today's show is brought to you by Catalyst Software, the fastest growing customer success platform on the market. Catalyst gives you unmatched customizability, a seamless bi-directional Salesforce integration that takes less than five minutes to set up, and a world-class customer success team that'll be by your side every step of the way. Let's be honest, whatever you're currently using might be good enough, but is good enough really what you're aiming for? Take your CS team to the next level by switching to Catalyst today. To learn more, visit catalyst.io. And if you aren't looking for a CS platform right now, you should subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn anyways. I make daily memes, we host all sorts of events, and we love to give away our swag, which has been called the comfiest swag in the industry. Again, check out catalyst.io to learn more. All right, let's talk about the hiring crisis a bit. There's a new article from the New York Times. Um, tech companies face a fresh crisis, hiring. Recruiters in tech are desperate for workers, but candidates are the ones who hold all the power. If you're in tech and you're currently employed and you're currently happily employed, you will definitely identify with a lot of the things in the, this article. And I do like that they came at it, though, from the perspective of a experienced recruiter. They're highlighting a uh, woman, Th Tiffany Daiba, a 39-year-old recruiter in New York uh, who was formerly a recruited a luxury fashion designer, and now she's completely focused on tech. And it's really interesting to hear her talk about this experience transitioning to a tech recruiter, and then you know what it used to be like, where people were coming to her asking for help to find their next role, and you know she had the great relationships with all the best companies, so people were courting her and sending her gifts and writing her really great messages and and trying to get her to to give them the time of day. Now it's completely reversed and. And she talks about, you know, sending out 75 messages, customized messages to people that are describing, you know, unlimited PTO, 100% remote, competitive compensation, stock options, all these things. And, you know, she said it was 75. It's lucky if she gets five responses and three of them are going to be a no and two are going to be a please don't contact me. Like... It is crazy. And, and I've seen that personally. Like, I, I'll get these messages. I like to try to respond to everyone just saying, you know, no, thank you, but all the best in your search. But I feel for recruiters in some ways. The spot I don't feel for recruiters is that recruiters have also seen record highs in terms of the commissions that they are able to take. Um, some companies are, some recruiters are able to command up to 45% of the first year's salary as their commission on a hire. So if you're an executive hiring firm and you know the salary for the person is $250,000 to $500,000, I mean, you'd be making a couple hundred grand off just getting one person hired. So there's it's, it's never been a harder time for recruiters, but it also has never been a more rewarding time for recruiters. Um, so it's really interesting to see. And it's also a great situation for people who are in tech who are gainfully employed and have the experience and all this stuff because, you know, the, that's the profile that these companies are looking for. So great. Um, we get a lot of control. We have a lot of say over different things like that. But it's also a, a harder time for people who are new to tech um, because they don't have that. So they're still having to try to chase after these roles and companies have are really trying to be specific about who they're trying to hire and they want people with past experience. So if you're trying to get into tech, it's, it is a really tough time and, and the market is really saturated with people who are trying to shift in, especially during the pandemic, just because so much changed and so many people either lost their job or, or realized that their job, you know, was not something that was pandemic proof and they want to be something pandemic proof, which granted not every company is pandemic proof, but many tech companies could go 100% remote and um, have all these benefits and things. So 
it's a really interesting problem. And I think there's a few things that, that need to be done that I, I just don't think are going fast enough. The, the biggest problem being this retraining and talent gap. I've always been a big proponent of you know, not hiring someone who's been there, done that 10 times. I think when you do that, basically, you, and this is the case for a lot of executives, they do something and then they have sort of their playbook and then they say, okay, I'm just going to do the same thing at every company I go to. So the company will be like, okay, we're going to hire this, this person who's done this thing at previous company. And that person, you know, they grew them from, let's say series A to IPO, whatever. Okay, great. That person then gets hired by the new company to take them from Series A to IPO, and they have the same playbook, and they want to do the same thing they did at the previous company, at the new company, and they do that time and time again. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But for me personally, I just think you get so much, there's so many reasons to hire someone who isn't in that situation, because they're just going to be a lot hungrier. They're going to be more innovative. They have something to prove. Generally, you pay, you can pay them a little bit less. So instead of hiring a five-time VP, you hire, you know, a senior director and promote them to VP. And then, you know, they have something to prove. And that works for, for higher levels. Where that gets tricky is with more junior or more entry-level roles. Maybe not quite entry-level, because let's be honest, entry-level doesn't really exist in tech, which is another problem in and of itself. Um, we need ways to get people into tech, in particular customer success. Like people want to be in customer success. We need great CSMs. Yet yeah, find me a CSM. I dare you, if anyone who's listening to this can send me a CSM role, that does not require at least one to two years of experience as a CSM at a prior B2B SaaS company, I will be shocked. I will send you a gift card courtesy of Catalyst. Like th that is something that really doesn't exist. People want experienced CSMs, fair enough, but we need a way to get people into this industry. We need people to get trained. We need people to get certified. We need people to be able to take on these roles. Otherwise, like what's gonna happen? All that's going to happen is the people who are already in the space are going to be able to com command higher and higher salaries because as they get promoted, as they move throughout their career, they're just going to become a rarer and rarer commodity. We need more people in order to balance out this market and make sure we can continue growing um, because what's the other risk, right? Like if I have a role on my team that's been open for, I don't know, four weeks, six weeks, something like that, hiring a senior field, uh, sorry, senior field marketing manager at Catalyst. And obviously we're extremely selective. I'm extremely selective. But the longer that we don't have that person in that role, you know, the more, the less we're able to do, right? Like I have to wind down maybe certain events or we can't green light certain things that I'm excited to do until we have this person in place. And so you can imagine that at scale. If a company has 10 open roles for CSMs or, you know, uh, 10 open roles for account executives or developers, you know, it means you can't sell that company. It means you can't build that feature or build that integration or, you know, like, the hiring cycle is so important and we need to be, people need strong talent pipelines in order to continue growth. And if the growth of our industry stalls, then investment in our industry stalls. And then, you know, all the benefits and perks and great compensation that many of us are enjoying right now start to go away. So we need to be careful about that and we need to be more intentional about building in entry level opportunities, whether it's through internships, co-ops, um, retraining programs. We need to start working with companies that are doing CSM trainings and certifications. It's hard right now. Like, honestly, if, if someone were to come to me with zero CSM experience, you know, but they did a course on it, I would be impressed by the initiative that they took. And I would, I would definitely say that they're on the right track, but I still have yet to talk to a CS leader who would be willing to, who has a roll up for a CSM with one to two years experience that in lieu of that would be willing to accept a certain certification or, you know, CS course or something like that. So there, we need to define a clear pathway. And, and I know I'm using customer success as the primary example, but this is true across the board. 
you know, we need better ways to get people into tech. Um, we need to be working more with with colleges and universities to provide training. We need to figure out more entry level roles. Like, I think that's the biggest thing I never see across the board. When I look at careers pages of other companies, I almost never see entry level roles. And I think it's a short sighted thing and I completely get it. And I emphasize I candidly don't have any entry level roles open on my team. Uh, but I think that's something that we need to figure out with people leaders and with uh, you know, other industry leaders. And I, I love that there are organizations like SV Academy, like On Deck, um, Success Hacker, you know, consultancies um, like Growth Molecules and 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 the Success League and, and so many others that are trying to educate people and try to uh, offer these services, um, practical CSM, CSM practice, you know, there's there are some, but we still aren't at that point yet where we have the maturity where people can say, oh, I did this thing. Okay, that counts for a year of CSM experience. We can we can give you a shot. And we need to be doing a better job of creating those opportunities at our companies. Anyways, bringing it back to what I was mentioning before, it is, it is a great time to be a recruiter. It is a terrible time to be a recruiter. It's a great time to be a hiring manager and a terrible time to be a hiring manager. Um, it is a very interesting time to be in tech on the people side. On a similar topic, the New York Times came out with an article today called, Do You Know Who That Worker You Just Hired Really Is? Employers love to talk about authenticity, but psychologists say nearly everyone uses some form of deception to get a job. And it's a really interesting article that spotlights some very specific cases where people either had a friend do a technical interview for them or create an assignment for them. You know, one person even ended up getting hired uh, based on their ability to do data visualization and and you know, they were asked to do it their first week and just ran out of the office and sent an email saying they were quitting. Pretty crazy stuff. But, you know, the, the article talks about how we're seeing a rise in this because virtual interviewing has become a thing now, a much more common thing, right? It's much easier to fake your way through something if it's remote. People can feed you answers or can take the interview for you, depending on if you have the camera on or not. But also, you know, we're seeing a lot of people that are trying to get into tech roles that don't maybe don't have the experience. And we're seeing increasingly competitive fields and we're seeing increases in compensation, like all these things sort of mixed together to create an environment where people, when you have someone applying for a job, generally they, they really want that job. And because there is so little sort of existing experienced talent that is currently on the market in the tech industry, companies are more likely to, they're more desperate for talent and they're more likely to maybe turn a blind eye to things or be susceptible to people who are trying to fake their way in. And uh, I can't remember where the stat is. It might have been in the uh, New York Times article, but they were saying that unemployment in tech is 1.7% compared to, you know, the unemployment rate in general, which I think is 4% or, or higher. So because of that, we have this perfect storm of reasons why people have an incentive and the ability now, given remote, to fake their way through interviews. So some ways to solve that, you know, people are asking more qualitative questions like, tell me about a time you did this thing and, and that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, we still need to evaluate developers. We still need to, you know, see an assignment generally. We need to see writing samples. Like if you're going for a copy or a content role, like we need to see writing samples and it's hard to validate that someone truly wrote something. You're not asking them to write them, you know, pull up a Google Doc, share your screen and write a blog live while I watch. Like that would be um, a horrifying and terrible experience uh, for anyone going for a content job. 
But I think, you know, this is also indicative of companies not sending the right signals about being authentic during during job interviews. I mean, we need to get better at filtering people out, making sure that people have the background. But also a lot of the reason for this, and, and the New York Times article talked about this, a lot of the reason for this is just people are nervous. Like, people are very nervous, and, and I'm interviewing people multiple times a week, and I can tell that they're nervous, and it's very hard to get someone who's nervous to not be nervous on the spot, especially if you are the cause of their nerves. Um, not that I am particularly intimidating in any way. You can look me up on LinkedIn and see me dancing in my underwear uh, in our office. But, um, <laughs> true story. But, you know, if someone really wants this job and I'm the barrier or I'm the conduit to getting the job, then it's understandable why they'd be nervous. So figuring out different ways that you can try to, if you're the hiring manager, try to figure out ways that you can down downgrade their their nerves make them a little more comfortable um, some strategies that i use for that are sharing something personal about myself um, talking about my own weaknesses or my own shortcomings whether it's as a as a performer or as a manager um, as well as things that i'm good at i try to balance that out i still want them to work here but that is something that i've found has worked really well I try to make jokes. I just try to insert whatever I can. I take every little opportunity to insert something that shows my own vulnerability and my own authenticity. And generally, that signals to people that they can let their guard down a little bit more. Um, not always, but sometimes. And if you're the person who's interviewing, nerves are a good thing. Like, the, you know, coming, I came from a theater background and I was always nervous before every show. If the, the shows I wasn't nervous for were my worst ones. And that's because I didn't care. Nerves mean you care, and that is a great thing. If you have nerves, like I, I love when I am nervous now because it, it means that I'm doing something that I'm excited about. It means that there's something on the line. It means that like I'm doing something new. It means that like like nerves are the point of living. Like nerves are the come before every great thing that has ever happened. You know, before a marriage proposal, before a, a job interview, before you know, moving countries, like nerves precede everything great. So if you're feeling nerves about interviewing, lean into them, celebrate them, be grateful that you have them because it, all it signals is that this might be signals that you are on the precipice of something great, whether it's this immediate job or the next one that you're interviewing for. Other tricks you can do, practice answering questions um, with friends, do practice interviews, have other people review your answers, have people you know give you feedback, um, record video responses to things. I found that incredibly helpful. And the other thing too to remember is, and, and this is something I, I try to drive home for people who are more junior in their career, as you progress throughout your career, you'll learn that the things that are unique to you, your own specific personality and your traits, your characteristics, your skills, your authenticity, those are the things that you will end up getting hired and promoted for. You will not be hired or promoted if you're the same as everybody else. Imagine there's a hundred other people who are equally as qualified you as you who are, I was gonna say auditioning, now I've got theater on the brain, who are interviewing for a job, right? hundred other people, they all have the exact same experiences that you do, so how are you gonna stand out? How are you gonna be the one that you know, beats them all out for that role? Well, it's your personality, it's your unique experiences, it's your background, it's the things the, that you, the qualitative and quantitative things that are different that you will bring to the table that others don't. So lean into that, be weird, be funny, be, you know, if that's you. If that's not you, if you're a quiet, shy person and you're really thoughtful and 
you know, you like to think before you speak instead of someone like me who just thinks out loud and rambles, as you can tell, you know, lean into that. Like you don't have to be Mr. or Mrs. Gregarious center of attention. And you also don't have to be super buttoned down, professional, all of that. Whatever feels natural to you, lean into that because A, it will differentiate you from everyone else. And B, it will ensure that you're happy where you end up getting hired. Right. Using myself as an example, if I make jokes and I show up in a uh, hoodie, I probably wouldn't wear a hoodie. Uh, but if I make jokes and I, you know, talk about whatever and I'm personality bubbly on an interview and I end up not getting hired uh, because they found that off putting or they found me not a culture fit, then that's a good thing. Because if I were to be hired by a company that didn't like that stuff about me, then I would be miserable. Like I need to be at a company where I can be myself and I can be authentic. And and even talking about my partner, if I can talk about, you know, my my husband, not intentionally, but if it comes up organically during an interview, if I can talk about him and then I can make sure that, okay, this is an environment where people aren't going to be like, oh, he's, he's talking about being gay. Let's like not go there. Like I can make sure that that's not an environment I'll end up in. And that's an important thing. In interviews, you should be evaluating the interviewer as much as they're interviewing you. And so it's critical that you show all your colors in that interview so that you know that it's the right fit and so that you can self-exclude. If they are like, this person's too much or this person's too, the, too this or too that, we're not going to hire them. That's a great thing because you just dodged a bullet. So lean into your personality as much as humanly possible. I have been avoiding this topic for a while because I cannot go on Twitter without seeing crap about NFTs and the metaverse. And I just can't. I'm like, I, and I think that's how like 99% of people feel like you see it and you're just like, but I hate this. <laughs> like no one, you know, you see the whatever the monkey getting sold for a hundred grand and then getting stolen or whatever, like the NFT monkey, you know, and you see people creator quote unquote unquote creators. I mean, that's a debatable topic, but quote unquote creators getting however millions of dollars for many millions of dollars for creating NFTs. And you see like Melania Trump buying and buying her own NFT for 170k because no one wanted it like it's a weird topic and i think the reason that i hate it so much and so many people that i know and respect hate it so much is because it's not real it's all virtual and not only is it virtual like i get it you know i work at a software company our software doesn't exist in the physical world i mean it does to a certain degree there's servers whatever but you know this is like further removed right so so a i think when it comes to art digital art virtual art this is where i might uh, ruffle some feathers, but I just don't think that it is art. I think that, I mean, I think if that's considered art, then man, our standards have dropped a lot in <laughs> even in, in 20 years, let alone, you know, what we look at as art. Like when you go to the Met, like the second the Met has virtual art on display that isn't like a temporary exhibition they're doing to try and attract like Zoomers in, I'm tuning out because. Anyway, I'm not going to do this whole whole thing just shitting on virtual art because that's that's not what I intended to do. You know, we we saw the we all saw the update this week about Facebookers being renamed MetaMates, um, which was met by a fair bit of pushback inside the company because some people found it sounded like the military. Some people felt that it was like a sailing reference because they're on a sinking ship, and there were all these comments about that. Um, you know, whatever they choose to name themselves, that that's fine with me. I, I mean, my concern is more with 
the the whole metaverse thing. So I did some digging on this, and and it's funny. Like, okay, there's all these legal concerns, and there's people talking about how this is going to be a problem in all sorts of ways for antitrust and for piracy and for intellectual property and personal privacy and like all these are free speech like there's going to be all these issues that come up if and when this theoretical futuristic metaverse exists some people say it exists already and that's a debatable topic the interesting thing about the metaverse though is that people were pointing out that you know people have wanted a metaverse for a long time and i think it, it comes from the background of gaming right like everyone wants more immersive more realistic like and i completely understand that um the gaming side of it but the thing is, people don't want Facebook to build the metaverse. Like, that's the thing. People want it, but they don't want Facebook to build it. Like, in order, and this is a generalization, but by and large, people think that something that's metaverse-like could be really, it has the potential to be really cool, right? If you think about an immersive virtual experience where, whether you're a gamer or not, right? Like, visiting family, you know, having work meetings, going, touring the Grand Canyon. Like, there's, there's obviously, you know, virtual, probably not as good as in-person for that one, but... There are a whole host of things that could be incredibly cool and impactful about a metaverse. Um, the problem is that no one likes or trusts Facebook, so no one wants Facebook to build it. I apologize to the people I know that work at Meta because i uh, very happy for you. Many of the people I know that work at Meta, their companies were bought by Meta, in which case I don't consider you part of a, a MetaMate yet. Um, but the problem is Facebook has such a bad rap, right? People don't trust it. There's all these privacy issues. They're being sued left, right, and center. And so people, you know, they want a metaverse, but they don't want Facebook to be the one that builds it for all of those reasons. They know that if Facebook builds it, the whole point will be for Facebook to get more money and get more data from you. And no one trusts that they'll be doing the right things with that money and that data. And, you know, our minds go to all the ways that Facebook has been abused. You know, granted, there's been a lot of great that has come out of it, but there's also been horrific stuff like what happened in Myanmar. Like there's a whole bunch of things that have potentially negative consequences coming out of this. So while people want a metaverse and all the things that that has to offer, they want it to be built, I think, by by someone else. And, you know, this just signals some other things about Facebook, right? Like for Facebook, their average age is now over 40 years old. Um, it's mostly male and it's been declining in terms of their number of users. I mean, we all saw their stock take a major hit last quarter. You know, in terms of the future of the company, I don't know that I would bet it on the metaverse. Like, it's great to be focused on technological innovation, but if people don't trust you, if you don't have the public trust, then it doesn't matter what you come up with. Come out with, people aren't going to use it. Like, I, it, it's that sort of thing. Like, if you know that someone sells faulty cars, like sells shitty cars, and they've been known for selling cars that fall apart, but then they get like this beautiful Camaro in, and they're, and it, and it is actually like an incredible Camaro. It doesn't matter how great it is, how mint it is, all this stuff. If if that person has that rep, you're not going to want to buy the car from them. That's just a reality of of people. And so, you know, Facebook can't just change its name to Meta and then suddenly people forget about you know, everything that's happened, um, they have to do a lot of work to regain public trust. So, I mean, that's where I would be dedicating some of my, I don't know, $2 trillion or whatever their their revenue was uh, last year towards. And by and large, I mean, I think as in terms of how this fits in with the larger conversation about metaverse and NFTs and all this stuff, I, I, going back to what I was saying earlier, people are just craving physical things that are real. Like that's why everyone got into sourdough. That's why everyone got into all of these at home things during COVID. It's like when all else fails, you know, like I, I know, cause I, this is one of the first, I think it was the first blog I ever wrote in tech was can't I just open a bakery? Like 
I love tech. I love the people in tech. I love the industry. And I think it does amazing things. And it's so much fun. But a part of me is just like, I want to go be a baker. I want to go be a bartender. I just want to do a thing that's like, I make bread. There's something that is romantic about that. There is something that is so appealing about that. It, it just appeals to some like core part of our humanity. And I think that as we get into these things about, you know, is the metaverse a real place? Like it's a place where you can exist, you can buy, you can sell, you can meet people, you can learn, you can, you know, do all these things. But is it real? You know, what is reality there? And the same as going back to my my old man ramblings about NFTs being art. Like, is it art? Like, if it doesn't exist in the real world, like, it's not paint on a canvas. It's not ink on paper. It's not, you know, an emulsion on, on uh, you know, a photograph. Like, so is it art? Like, these things are questions that, sure, people can make all sorts of claims. But at the end of the day, I think there's a reason that we will always have a reaction to a physical painting versus a virtual you know, versus an NFT, there's like something carnal about it. There's something inherent to our, our human nature that just draws us to one towards one and not the other, which is why I just so wish that the money that was being put towards NFTs and metaverse was going towards things in the physical world. Like that's what we need most. We need more actual artists. We need more actual creators who are creating physical things. We need more beauty around us. We need more infrastructure, but we need like that's that's beautiful, but we need to be funding actual arts and culture and i mean i always think about it this way too if you're if you're not convinced yet what is the first thing that someone does when they make a shitload of money they buy a car they buy luxury clothes they buy art like a car is art a beautiful car is art beautiful clothes luxury clothes are art now granted fashion industry has also been seriously lacking last few years. But that aside, you know, the first thing people do when they have money is they invest it in actual art. No one wants to get rich so that they can buy an NFT. Like that's pathetic. Okay, there's probably one bro out there that would, but you know, people invest in this stuff. So I wish that companies were putting even half the amount of money they're putting into the metaverse and NFTs into actually improving the real world around us because there is so much to improve and so much opportunity there that is just being squandered. And if you ask me, Real world is a way better investment. Yes, real world can deteriorate or be damaged or, you know, maybe it's locked to a physical location. You know, not everyone in the world can access it right away. But that's what makes it special. That's what makes it a thing. Like if you create virtual art that can be bought, sold, traded by anyone anywhere in the world and it looks different depending on the screen that you look at it on and it, you know, can be stolen or whatever, like that's not special. Like you're killing art, like you're killing what makes art art. And I think that's what drives me most insane about the whole movement towards metaverse, NFTs, virtual property, you know, like all these the virtual ad space, virtual, it's it takes us even farther out of reality when it's like, we're already removed enough. We need to be going back into the real world. Unless the, the majority want this like matrix like dystopian, you know, ready player one future, where we're 100% virtual. I don't think anybody wants that for anybody. So why are we going that direction? Why are tech companies pulling us in that direction? Why aren't we investing in, in real world stuff? And and I understand why companies feel like they need to focus on this, right? There are benefits to this virtual world. The same as, as doing virtual events, right? Anyone in the world can access them. You got a lot of top of funnel because there's such a little barrier to sign up. You know, there's sort of those immediate gratification kinds of things. But I would rather any day do a 30-person in-person event than a 30,000-person virtual event because that in-person one is going to include actual relationship building. There's something that's physical, that's human about it, and 
I can guarantee you that it will result in a higher return on investment than the virtual event if what you're doing is trying to, let's say, close deals. Um, so every day I'll pick that in-person event. And it's the same with the metaverse and the NFT stuff. And, and I think we can separate out crypto from this. But so that's why I, I get so frustrated about it. I think we're putting all this money towards a future that no one wants. And I get it, like, you know, the whole um, Henry Ford quote about if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. True. Great point. Something to think about. But I think if you asked enough questions, if you were to say, well, what about if you could run your carriage quickly and you wouldn't need a horse at all? People would think you were talking about magic, but they'd say, well, yeah, that'd be amazing. And so that's the comparison I'd make. Like, OK, you could say we're going to build the NFT, the, the metaverse, because, you know, if you were to ask people what they want, they wouldn't say the metaverse because they can't even think of it. It's so forward thinking, blah, blah, blah. But if you were to guide people towards that and ask other questions, would you like to spend more time online or offline? Would you like to spend more time plugged in or less time plugged in? Like you're going to get a lot of answers that show you that people do not want to be spending more time. In fact, the whole movement, the last freaking five years has been like, hey, let's unplug all these tech people. Don't let their kids access Facebook or even have cell phones or do all these things. There's a reason. Let's all try to add in, you know, like you have Apple changing its privacy policy so that you know, it's not sharing data. You have companies needing to get your permission to accept cookies. Um, you're getting Apple putting on their phones time limits and things like that so that you can limit the amount of time you're spending online. The whole movement the last five years has been towards helping people unplug. So it doesn't make sense to me why Facebook is, is or Meta, sorry, is so focused on this future that requires people to be more plugged in. It just it seems completely counterintuitive. So maybe they know something I know. Probably they know a lot more than I know because, um, you know, they're they're meta and have access to a lot more information. But for my boots on the ground, you know, potential future user, although probably not perspective, that's that's just my gut feel on this. And I think at this point in time, the world just needs more in person. It needs more real, more physical. Um, and we re need to reconnect with the outside world especially during COVID, people are freaking tired and people are stressed. And the way to fix that is not by more plugging in all the data we've had. We have 20 years of data on the internet now, and there is a nothing but strong, clear correlation between the amount of time you spend online and depression and anxiety. So if anything, like we need to be figuring out strategies to get people to unplug more. Can you build a version of Facebook that doesn't require you to be online? That I'll sign right up for it. Like there are so many opportunities there. Let's be smarter about that. And um, anyway, that's everything that I had for you guys today. Um, you know, we covered LinkedIn, um, gaining, growing, adding this new politics filter. We covered the hiring crisis. We covered people faking their ways through interviews. We covered NFTs and the metaverse, which I had been putting off talking about for a long time because I knew, knowing myself, that it would be an angry tirade. So thank you for sticking with me. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and I'm excited to come back you with another one next week. Have a great one. Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Make sure to subscribe. And if you want to reach out to us, our email is community at getcatalyst.io.